Broadcasting on the Drug Truth Network, this is Cultural Baggage. It's not only inhumane, it is really fundamentally un-American. My name is Dean Becker. I don't condone or encourage the use of any drugs, legal or illegal. I report the unvarnished truth about the pharmaceutical, banking, prison, and judicial nightmare that feeds on eternal drug war. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Cultural Baggage. My name is Dean Becker. We've got another report for you from Montreal, where a counter-DEA symposium was held earlier this month, in contrast and hopefully in comparison to a concurrent DEA, Drug Enforcement Administration of the United States, worldwide convention, which was also being held in Montreal. First up, we hear from a retired British Columbia judge, Jerry Paradis, who has been on the bench for more than 1,000 drug cases. I've been asked to address the question of the impact of drug prohibition on the courts. But it's really hard not to see the courts as only one element in the sort of perverse and convoluted structure that prohibition has created. After 25 years of adjudicating issues between the state and individuals, only because those individuals chose to ingest the wrong substance, What stands out for me is the serious fundamental disconnection between the role of the state and the approach it has chosen to deal with the health issues that arise arise from from psychoactive drug use and abuse. The primary function of governments, the the value that underlies all of the others, is the safety and security of citizens. For that reason, and that reason alone, It has a legitimate role in regulating potentially dangerous substances, which drugs unquestionably can be. As you've already heard, uh, the role governments have chosen, prohibition, actually enhances the poisonous potential of drugs. As you also heard, drugs in themselves never posed any threat to safety or security. So one can legitimately ask how courts ever got involved. Our first drug laws, and remember, we were in the game eight years before the U.S. Harrison Act in 1914. Those laws were enacted for no other reason but that the consumption of drugs, mainly opium by Chinese immigrants, was thought to be unseemly by the God-fearing ladies of the church auxiliary. How did we ever get from that shameful enough beginning to dehumanizing the weak, as a policy? How did we come to create a demon out of nothing but appearance and class distinction? And more to the point, to what end? A quick scan of my notes taken over 25 years of trials, preliminary hearings, guilty pleas, and sentences in drug cases, well over a thousand cases of possessing, importing, trafficking in, or producing every psychoactive drug on the street, A look at those notes makes it clear that nothing has changed except for the worse. More people are choosing to ingest mood-altering substances and the same proportion are becoming addicted. Only the market has evolved. The system of supply is still as persistent, but as all successful enterprises do, it's expanded greatly and become much more efficient. 
For all the billions spent on enforcement, you can reasonably ask, where is the bang for the buck? Simple possession of marijuana still dominates drug prosecution statistics, with cocaine not far behind. And that hopeless attempt to attack demand while being basically impotent in the face of supply has done nothing more than stigmatize hundreds of thousands of Canadians who, remember, never threatened the safety or security of anyone except perhaps in some cases themselves. From 2000 to 2005, the Provincial Court of British Columbia, where over 95% of all criminal cases in the province are heard, dealt with over 50,000 drug cases. And that's just those that are directly related to the drugs themselves. It is very difficult to put a number on all of the property crimes that have been committed in order to get the money to get the drugs. But my experience is that that is the motive in about 50% of shoplifting, break-ins, car break-ins, muggings, purse snatchings, ATM frauds. On the more serious side are the murderers and maimings among groups fighting for position in the incredibly lucrative drug market. So if the primary role of government is safety and security, my experience in the courtroom produces this report card on prohibition. Drug use and abuse has increased. The addict and even the casual user in a market lacking any kind of quality control is at constant risk of infection or death from overdose. The average citizen faces a pretty high risk of being the victim of petty crime, and that same citizen is also at some risk of being in the wrong place at the wrong time as the drug gangs duke it out. The security of the future of every person convicted of a drug crime, no matter how minor, is put at risk. As for the courtroom itself, the caseloads in many places across the country are at crisis levels brought to that point by the particular demands of prosecuting drug crimes. Because they're victimless, the state has to rely on two very problematic investigative techniques, the search and the snitch. And the first alone has generated an enormous spider's web of case law. Very few drug cases are fought on the issues that would seem obvious. Did the person have a drug? Was it a drug and did he have it on him? No, the common approach is to attack the legality of the search that led to the discovery of the drug. And the result is th of that is that every drug case that goes to trial is guaranteed to take up an enormous amount of court time. So it's dismaying to hear the Prime Minister now advocating increasing penalties for some drug crimes. The only ones specified so far are trafficking and marijuana grow-ups. By doing away trafficking and marijuana grow-ups, by doing away with conditional sentences and imposing mandatory minimums. He should be aware that if he goes ahead, he can kiss goodbye the possibility of guilty pleas, the lifeblood of every criminal justice system. Facing stiff mandatory minimums, every accused will fight tooth and nail until every avenue is exhausted. And the result? A further hardening of the arteries of the system, which in turn will lead to greater delays. The Prime Minister should remember that the Constitution requires a trial within a reasonable time. What is reasonable may be a little flexible, but after 18 months or so, he should expect that many of those accused will be walking. I don't think that's the result he anticipates. Indeed, if he wants an object lesson in that drawback, among many others of mandatory minimums, he should check out the British Columbia Motor Vehicle Act. It used to have a mandatory minimum of a paltry seven days in jail for driving while your license was suspended. Every case was fought to the death to avoid that penalty. That spawned an outrageously huge body of technical arguments, and over time, 
Trial time for these relatively simple regulatory offenses went over the top. A short while ago, the minimum, the maximum, I'm sorry, the mandatory minimum was scrapped. The caseload disappeared almost overnight, and those that deserve it, the ones who have previous convictions and or pose a real threat on the roads, they're still going to jail. Getting tough plays well with the public condition to believe the myth that drugs are evil and that they can be controlled by greater punishment. All the evidence is clear. It is prohibition that is the evil, and the use of psychoactive substances will thrive long into the future, just as it has for the past thousands of years. To introduce our next speaker, I'm going to allow Canadian barrister Kirk Toussaint to handle the honors once again. I should also note that, yes, indeed, the judge will be speaking mostly in Spanish, but will carry the translation. Merci beaucoup, Monsieur Paradis. Thank you very much, Mr. Jerry Paradis. Our next speaker is the Honorable Martin Vazquez Acuna uh, from Argentina. He's a former professor. He is a researcher at the University of Buenos Aires, and he is also, uh, in Argentina, a trial judge. Oh, I will, uh, to be precise in my comments, I will speak in Spanish uh, a couple of translators here. Uh, thanks, Carlos Godoy, and thanks all the supporters of this conference. Como juez de la Argentina, en modo alguno, respaldo el tráfico de drogas. As an Argentinian Court of Appeals judge, I don't support drug trade. Ni tampoco los vendedores de drogas. Neither drug uh, sellers. Ni mucho menos a los que venden drogas a nuestros jóvenes and even less those who sell drugs to our youth pero tampoco respaldo aquellas políticas en materia de drogas but I can't either support uh, drug policies que afectan los derechos humanos that, uh, these drug policies that affect human rights tenemos dos grupos de normas internacionales conviviendo we have two groups of uh, international norms that are living together drugs laws leyes sobre drogas Los tratados internacionales de 1961 del convenio único sobre drogas, del convenio sobre estupefacientes de 1971 y el convenio y la convención de Naciones Unidas contra el tráfico de estupefacientes de, la, de Viena de 1988. We have a series of uh, drug policies and uh, human rights uh, regulations that. Um, um, Share the political space right now, amongst, other, uh, amongst which are the uh, 1988 Vienna uh, United Nations Convention on uh, against illicit uh, drug trafficking and uh, psychotropic substance. En, la, en el otro lado tenemos las convenciones de derechos humanos, el Pacto Internacional de Derechos Civiles y Políticos. On the other side, we have the Human Rights Convention and the International Pact on Derechos Civiles y Políticos. On the civil and the human rights. Pacto Internacional de Derechos Económicos, Sociales y Culturales. The International Pact on the Civic, Economic and Cultural Rights. El Pacto contra la Tortura. The Pact or the Convention Against Torture and others. Estos dos temas están conviviendo. These two issues uh, share the political sphere. Pero estamos frente a dos escenarios totalmente diferentes. But we're facing two differently, uh, different and completely different scenarios. Por un lado, las leyes que protegen los derechos humanos. On one side, the laws that protect human rights. Y el otro, el sistema de control de drogas. And on the other side, the control policy system. Y en el medio, en el medio una serie de actores 
que tratan de equilibrar la situación con bastante poco éxito. And in the middle, a series of actors that try to manage both situations with very little success. Do, eh, ambos sistemas se han venido expandiendo en los últimos 10 años, aunque de manera diferente. Both systems have had a lot of growth in the past 10 years, although very, very significantly different growth. El sistema de protección de derechos humanos abarca cada vez más nuevos derechos. The system to protect human rights always, uh, every day, uh, reaches a point where it wishes to protect and gains to protect more and more civil rights. Que en otra época estaban rezagados. Uh, human rights which in another time uh, weren't included in such protection. Por otro, eh, también contamos con un sistema de control de drogas. We also have a system of drug con policy control. Que pretende invadir espacios. That tries to uh, invade some spaces. De, que no son propios. Uh, that, that don't belong to it. Por ejemplo, con los delitos conexos. For example, such as uh, uh, collateral uh, offenses. offenses. Se puede hablar que los derechos humanos puede ser violado. We say that uh, some human rights can be violated. Por el llamado derecho de drogas. You know, uh, in the name of, you know, the drug policy control. Se violan las leyes, se violan los derechos humanos en nombre de los derechos de drogas. Human rights are therefore violated in the name of drug policy and drug control. En Latinoamérica y especialmente en Argentina. Uh, in Latin America and especially in Argentina. Cuando derechos constitucionales son agredidos. When uh, constitutional rights are uh, baffled. Cuando no se respeta el debido proceso. When due process isn't respected. Cuando jueces militares manejan los juicios penales. When military judges uh, preside over criminal tribunals. Cuando hay detención sin orden judicial. When uh, individuals are detained without court orders. Cuando hay allanamientos en las casas sin los jueces when there's sin orden a, de los, de los jueces yeah, when there's a, uh, warrants uh, when there's a home searches without warrants uh, duly approved by judges o requisas en los cuerpos or bodily searches without due uh, requirement o, con, o cuando se presentan los juicios testigos anónimos or when in front of courts anonymous uh, witnesses uh, uh, Make a, give a, a deposition or a statement. O cuando no, se, no es posible controlar a los testigos informantes. When it's impossible to uh, control. control or certify uh, informants that also testify. Hoy se ha hablado mucho de esto, pero principalmente este derecho de drogas. We, we've talked a lot about this today, but um, nominally the right uh, the drug laws. Afecta el derecho a la salud. Uh, this affects uh, the right to health. Protegido por el artículo 12. As protected by article 12. De la Convención sobre Derechos Económicos, Sociales y Culturales. In the Convention or uh, Conventum on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. Cuando se penaliza la tenencia de droga para uso personal. When is, uh, when we admonish the... Or punish. Punish the uh, holding of uh, drugs or having drugs for personal use. Cuando imponemos tratamiento compulsivo. Cuando imponemos tratamiento. When we uh, impose a compulsory treatment. Compulsory treatment. Y en, en otros países como Colombia, Perú. Uh, but in other countries such as Colombia or Peru. Cuando se, cuando se fumiga con glifosato. When uh, they fumigate with glyphosato. 
glyphosate o herbicide o uh, microherbicide toxic. Mucha uh, parte de la población en Colombia y Ecuador, large parts of the population in Colombia and Ecuador, han sufrido daños en sus tierras, have suffered, uh, have suffered damage to their lands, y en la salud de la población, and their health, principalmente la de los niños, nominally children, porque las aguas han sido intoxicadas, because their waters have been uh, polluted, was the water was intoxicated with this kind of, uh, of uh, Glyphosate. Glyphosate. Entonces, Therefore, los que impulsan la política de drogas penalizando la tenencia de droga para uso personal. Those who uh, promote the drug policies to penalize those who possess drugs. Lo que hacen es clandestinizar. What they do is they clandestinize estas personas para el sistema de salud. These people for the health system. No solamente en la atención de aquellos usuarios de drogas. Not only for them, for the use, drug users. No, not only for the attention of, the, the, of them, sino también por impiden intervenciones en materias de prevención. Because they also impede intervention in uh, fields such as uh, prevention. Por ejemplo, en materia de reducción de daños. For example, in uh, terms of uh, damage reduction. Harm reduction. Harm reduction. Interventions. ¿Qué derecho es superior? Therefore, which right is superior? The life or the, or the security? Thank you very much. Speaking next at that conference in Montreal was someone you've heard a couple of times here on the Drug Truth Network. Our next speaker is uh, from the United States. His name is Mr. Jerry Cameron. He is from Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. He is a retired uh, police officer, police chief. I am here to talk to you today, not as someone that is trying to tell you, as a sovereign nation, how you should conduct your drug policy. I am here to warn you not to listen to those from my country that would try to do the same. And if my country had been successful, then there might be some reason to follow their example. However, I'm going to talk to you as a police officer, a police officer that was trained at the highest levels, that served as a police chief in two jurisdictions, and was dedicated to prosecuting the war on drugs. A police officer that was so aggressive, police chief that was so aggressive, that my department was recognized across the country for some of the tactics that we used, and we were actually on the front cover of Law & Order magazine. I came to realize during the latter stages of my career that not only was there no efficacy to what I was doing, that the whole war on drugs was creating a myriad of unintended consequences, consequences that perverted the very purpose of government and the mission of law enforcement. We raise our hands and we swear that we will protect our Constitution. We swear that we will serve and protect our communities. And then somehow or another, we fall into activity that has exactly the opposite effect. Well over 200 years ago, 
Thomas Jefferson in our Declaration of Independence said that every citizen, every human, has a right to his life, his liberty, and his pursuit of happiness. And then Jefferson goes on to say most poignantly, in order to secure these rights, governments are founded among men in order to secure those rights. And that is the mission of the police, because the police is the arm of government that gives the insurance of safety to your rights. We have perverted that mission to the extent in the United States that the federal government has tortured our Constitution into allowing it to impose its will in the matter of the war on drugs on the states, which are supposed to have the rights to such things reserved to themselves. And most recently in my country, we have, through the enactment of the Patriot Act and several decisions by the United States Supreme Court that have the effect of essentially making our Bill of Rights irrelevant. Now, if we're going to export something to a neighbor, I would suggest that we not export something that has such devastating consequences to society. We have approached the problem now for 90 years in the United States with only one strategy, spend more money, arrest more people. Our treasury is empty and our prisons are full. And we have a problem that is worse than it ever was. And one of the things that I want to touch on this morning is a product of the war on drugs that has the most devastating effect and the largest unintended consequences. And it is this concept of minimum mandatory sentencing. When we deny our judges the ability to do exactly what they're placed in office to do, and that is to judge, we might expect that we would have some consequences. But minimum mandatories have crippled the criminal justice system in the United States. I was at a conference where a, I was approached by a DEA agent well up in the administration, and he said, why are you doing this? And I said, because I think it's unreasonable that we would have three-quarters of a million people imprisoned for marijuana with the vast majority of those being in prison for simple possession. And he says, you know, that's not true. He said, you know that most of those cases were for more serious crimes and they were plea bargained down to simple possession. And I said to him, are you telling me that we have so crippled and debilitated our judicial system and our criminal justice system that we do not put people in jail for what they did anymore. We have to charge them with a crime other than what they did. And he turned around and walked off. In the state of Florida, where I live, we have one of the most serious examples of the consequences of this. If you've followed the news in the U.S., you know that Florida in the last two or three years has had a number of instances of young girls being kidnapped, sexually molested, tortured, and ultimately killed. And each one of the perpetrators should have been in jail. But he wasn't in jail. 
And the reason that he wasn't in jail is that some person that never committed a violence, an act of violence against anyone, had his seat. Daily, in the state of Florida and the United States of America, we put real criminals back out onto the street so that minor drug offenders can have their seats. We're supposed to protect. We're supposed to serve. We're supposed to do everything we can to reduce harm to our communities. And we put burglars, rapists, murderers, and child molesters on the street because of a failed concept called minimum mandatory sentencing. Canada and several other countries in the world have taken some progressive steps, and they've gotten good results. But now there is an effort to pressure those countries into following the failed example of the United States. I will hope that you will celebrate your national sovereignty and you will resist any efforts, both under the table and out in front, by my government or any other government, to force you into a situation that has proven to be devastating in the United States of America. Merci beaucoup. We hope to bring you additional segments from the anti-DEA conference in Montreal in the coming weeks, but we hope to bring you a live interview next week. Uh, pledge season is ending here at the mothership of the Drug Truth Network, and perhaps we can get it done. And now for another black perspective on the drug war. The drug war has not worked this year. No big surprise. The drug war did not work last year, or the year before, or the year before that. Yet the drug warriors all cry out for more, more police, more arrests, more of the same failed tactics they've always used. Now, it's true that doing the same thing over and over again while expecting a different outcome is the very definition of insanity. By that standard, pumping more billions of dollars each year into America's failed war on drugs is clearly insane. Or is it? Drug prohibition and drug war has resulted in the wholesale incarceration of hundreds of thousands of people, mostly black and brown people, and almost exclusively poor people. It has created a permanent underclass of politically disenfranchised, economically marginalized sub-citizens who are forever excludable from all publicly financed social programs. At the same time, it has stimulated the growth of a vast prison industrial system, expanded the powers of our law enforcement agencies, undermined our judicial system, and corrupted our public officials. The drug war has enriched a powerful few while eroding the constitutional protections and civil liberties of all Americans. To you and I, the people who finance the drug war with our tax dollars, who suffer from the crime, corruption, and violence of prohibition, who value our rights as citizens of a free and democratic nation and cherish the Constitution that guarantees those rights, this myopic reliance on drug war is insanity. But to those who would rule by force, who control by fear and racial hatred, and who line their pockets with both money from the drug trade and money from the public trough, the people who insist that we do the same thing over and over again because they profit from the outcome of endless drug war, nothing could be more sane or rational. If we really want to end the madness of drug war, we need to shift our focus away from the definition of insanity and examine this related truth, that an action rewarded will always be repeated. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Phil Jackson.
This is Gustavo de Grave, a former uh, general attorney of Colombia, talking about the drug problem through the Drug Truth Network. Next week on Cultural Baggage, our guest will be Gustavo de Grave. He's the former attorney general of the nation of Colombia. He's a former judge and on the board of directors of law enforcement against prohibition, leap.cc. Please visit our website, drugtruth.net. I want to thank all the good folks who submitted entries to name that drug war, and I'm proud to announce the winner. Matthew of Ohio pegged it as the war of confusion. Well, that's it. We're basically out of time. And once again, I remind you that because of drug prohibition, you don't know what's in that bag. Please be careful. To the Drug Truth Network listeners around the world, on behalf of engineer Philip Guffey, this is Dean Becker for Cultural Baggage and the Unvarnished Truth, the show produced at the Pacifica Studios of KPFT, Houston. Jap dancing on the edge of... Yeah, <laughs>